Good evening and welcome to this evening's episode, our first post-election episode of The Mary Trump Show. I am beyond honored and grateful uh, and many other things. Heaven <laughs> is my <laughs> guest, the extraordinary Joy Reid. Joy, thank you so much for being here. Oh, Mary, thank you for having me. This is exciting. This is fun. It's fun because uh, I I get to, you, you get free reign here. Uh, you know, I get to hear whatever you want to say, no holds barred. And um, honestly, you, you were one of the first people I thought of when finding, finding a guest for the first episode after uh, Tuesday and also known as uh, the most important election of our lifetime. Yeah. Um, although that's now 2024. So, yeah. <laughs> so I just want to, before we uh, broaden the conversation to other things, I just wanted to check in and get your, your take on uh, the lead up to the election and how you've been feeling since at least most, I mean, we're still waiting for results, but you know, we have a fair idea about where things stand. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, thanks again for having me on uh, Mary. You're one of the most fearless people uh, that's out there and I love you. And I, I love everything you say. I agree with every, not just because I agree with everything you say, but <laughs> I just love the fact that you have the, cojones to say the things you know so I appreciate you oh, um and so th th I think in the election it proved a couple of things right it first of all proved that the pundit class and the media have learned absolutely nothing um yeah. from when um your your uncle who I cannot believe that you're even related to I know you're you came from the good the good dad the good Trump <laughs> your dad was cool from the book uh, that I read about the family. Um, so you come from the good wing of the family. But since, you know, Donald Trump uh, ran for president, I feel like the media learned absolutely nothing. Because I feel like collectively, the media made a lot of the same exact mistakes that they made then. And that quite frankly, they made when George W. Bush, um, you know, was running for reelection. And after having started a war that was an unnecessary war, they learned nothing from that era either. And that is that Republican narratives dominate the so-called liberal media. There is no liberal media. Let's just be clear. There isn't a liberal media. There are a few liberals like myself who are on TV um, and that are on radio and that do podcasts, but there's no liberal media, quote unquote. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that the media collectively made, not calling out any individual media, just in general, um, was relying on these polling averages, which the Republican Party is really good at gamesmanship, not so good at governing really good at gamesmanship. And they gamed these polling averages by dumping tons of these crappy, small Republican leaning polls with no backup to the data. They dumped them into 538. They dumped them into real clear politics, which even the New York Times admitted in 2020 was now basically a pro-Trump outfit. Yep. And the media just took all that at face value and started yelling red wave, red wave, red wave. You can go across the board from the New York Times to Axios to on down. Everyone's saying the red wave is coming. Political red wave is coming. Red wave is coming. CNN red wave is coming. Everyone red wave is coming. And that set up an expectation that was not just false. It was dangerous. We are so lucky that this election, which went exactly as, you know, the real polling numbers taking away the crap polls said it was going to go the way it logically went after you rip abortion rights away from half the country 
you know, you don't even have to know politics that well to understand what women were going to do <laughs> after you yeah. did that to women, right? right. Um, and so it went the way it was supposed to. We're just lucky there, ha- there wasn't violence and that we're still, it's not over yet because we're still counting a couple of states as of this taping um, because you set up MAGA, which we know now is willing to try to violently overthrow the government. We know now is tied up with the three percenters and the proud boys and the oath keepers. And you set those people up to and basically guaranteed them a red wave? Really? Well, that doesn't seem very responsible. So I think that was the biggest takeaway. Yeah, and and Joy, I, I want to get into specifically uh, what you were just talking about in terms of uh, framing expectations and polling. Uh, but before that, I want to point out uh, for those who, who may not uh, know this, it is kind of astonishing too the number of so-called election de- deniers, which we can also call anti-democratic, anti-American uh, people running for office have conceded. (laughs) So uh, how do we make sense of that? But I'll take it because that kind of uh, suddenly responsible behavior will help diffuse any uh, tendency on the right to uh, commit acts of violence uh, to make a point. But as you said, from the beginning, and we're talking months out, the expectation was always conventional wisdom says that of course the party out of power is going to gain a lot of seats. That's historically what happens. And this has driven me crazy uh, for years now. And I I know that uh, you have pointed this out as well. The media continue, generally speaking, to treat the Biden administration as if it's a normal administration Mm -hmm. that took over from another normal administration. And these are normal times. Uh, So just kind of setting up the expectation that Republicans would win big was denying the truth that we are living in very serious, uh, unusual times uh, in modern American history. But then we also had this. Okay, so (laughs) Republicans, of course, are going to win hugely. Democrats start closing largely because of the Dobbs decision. And then the Democrats have a slight lead. And then, of course, inflation and gas prices. And the Republicans start taking over again. And suddenly it's a disaster for Democrats, <laughs> even though they weren't ever supposed to win in the first place. Right. So, so it's it's very uh, difficult to live in these times where it always seems no matter what, like the media is pulling for the other side. You know, they set up this, it's like heads I win, tails you lose, (laughs) no matter what you do. So do you often feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock? (laughs) Often or always. Always. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's amazing because yes, uh, I feel like, you know, and Jay Rosen at NYU has done a lot of really good work on this and, and there's a lot of good research to back it up, but there's a tendency in media to try to placate Republicans as much as possible to convince them that you're neutral, right? That the way to seem neutral is to take whatever Republicans say at face value and to take whatever Democrats say with incredible doubt. Um, And to always try to, you know, how many times is the New York Times going to go to a diner in the Midwest and talk to white voters about their economic anxiety? They're in a diner. They obviously have enough money to eat out, okay? (laughs) They ain't got got that much anxiety, okay? (laughs) Clearly, they got a little extra, a little extra coin. Yeah, they ain't home. Yeah. <laughs> they eating out in a diner, you know. And the New York Times. I mean, how many times are we going to have them wistfully looking out the window saying, "I don't feel seen." You're seen by the New York <laughs> Times. You're being seen right then and there by the so-called liberal media. They see you, buddy. You're in the diner. 
And there's a reporter talking to you. Incredible. You are seen. And you're on the front page. <laughs> you're on the front page looking wistfully out into the distance going, I just wish Trump could be president forever. <laughs> okay, they see you, man. <laughs> they oversee you, okay? You know who they never go out and talk to? Black people. They That's don't right. ever talk to us. They ain't coming to our diners, okay? Because if they yep. did, they would tell you, we're all voting for the Democrats. <laughs> like Other yeah. than like 10% of us, we're going to vote for the Democrats. That is how we vote, okay? So it's like, I don't know. I feel like the the media, it, it there's there's a theory about it. And I wrote a little bit about it um, in um, one of the books I wrote, I wrote that, that, that talks about the fact that the media used to be really bad on matters of race, right? So if you go back to the early 20th century, the media used to actually report on lynchings, even the New York Times. And they would report on them in advance. They would report on them in a way that basically made the lynching seem justified. And Black journalists like Ida, Bay, Ida B. Wells was demanding that they stop doing that. And the NAACP demanded that the media, especially the Northern media, I mean, the Southern media would celebrate lynchings, but so did the New York Times. There's a famous story that recently was published about the Times kind of celebrating the lynching of a bunch of Italian guys uh, because, you know, Italians were the second most lynched group because they weren't considered white right. back in the early 20th century. And then something happened around the 1950s and 60s. The media, with television coming online, they would go down into the South and they would interview Southerners and they would be openly racist. They would use the N-word. They would say Blacks want to be segregated. They would say all kind of crazy racist things on TV because they were trying to make their case. And the media suddenly said, you know what? There are good guys and bad guys here. This isn't a neutral story. We need to report on the civil rights movement as it's the heroic movement and the other side of the bad guys. That created this whole trajectory of this myth that the media is liberal, that the media is against white people, the media is against Southerners, the media is against the Southern way of life. And that really was ingrained until a guy named Roger Ailes figured out how to weaponize it and monetize it. And then we got Rupert Murdoch, Fox News, that whole thing. So we have this whole kind of sentiment that's set into the media that there's a bias against conservatives, which are now Republicans, which used to be Democrats were the conservatives. Now it's Republicans. And that perception of bias has seeped into, I think, almost every newsroom where they're like, we got to find ways to make the Republicans feel like we see them, like we don't hate them. And so we're just going to take whatever narratives they put out and we're just going to give, we're going to, at least give, you know, voice to them. We're going to we're going to take them at face value. And in a case like this, where you're dealing with an almost 1930s level of fascist behavior by one party, which, to be fair, the Democrats used to do, too, back in the, you know, early 19 early 1900s. It was the Democrats that were like this. Mm -hmm. But now that it's the Republicans, it's like no one wants to admit it. Like no one wants to go there. But we there, man. Because they literally stormed the freaking Capitol. And that wasn't on the ballot. Um, you know, uh, we, we, before we started, uh, you, you mentioned that unlike most everybody else, which as it turns out, except for me, because I was on the same page <laughs> with you, uh, you were optimistic going in uh, to Tuesday. And quite honestly, I was so optimistic that I'm a little disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> which is immature and I, you know because it, it it's all very very good uh yeah. and it's actually looking even better yeah um but the part part of the reason uh it's still close 
is is because of so many things that weren't on the ballot. Forget about, or not forget about, but in addition to the institutional disadvantages, Democrats always find themselves yeah. under, you know, in addition to uh, the horrible polls and the mainstream media's failures to frame this election properly. Um, we what wasn't explicitly on the polls, yes, in the voters' minds, thankfully, but what wasn't explicitly on the polls, January 6th, the big lie. Uh, the fact that the head of the Republican Party is still roaming free despite the fact that he stole thousands of documents from the U.S. government and God knows what he did <laughs> with the top secret, highly sensitive documents <laughs> that we know he stole. Right. Right. Um, and there's this, failure also to help people understand that we are one of the reasons the Democrats continue to struggle is because the underlying problems have never been addressed. The underlying problem is that America is a racist country. And when you fail to face that head on, you get into a situation where, um, you know, people think that inflation and high gas prices are the most important thing, democracy farther down on the list. Uh, so on the one hand, when when journalists tell you that, they're telling you that they failed miserably at their job <laughs> because, you know, they're le letting uh, voters think that inflation and has high gas prices are more important than democracy. Um, but you're also leading to a situation in which, you know, what it was, 72% of white women in Georgia voted for Brian Kemp. So it's so we're dealing with so many different complex issues and yet it'll, it still seems like it's pretty simple. We're dealing with the same shit that has been going on in my entire lifetime uh, and that has worsened considerably because of things like uh, Shelby uh, County versus um, Holder which was the beginning of the unraveling of the voting rights. I feel like I'm rambling, but um, <laughs> sorry, right. because it's like, it just, it seems like it's so simple. And yet given the, the way you set up the problems with the media, it, it feels like an intractable, intractable problem because it's been framed as a political problem. And framed as, as a game. Like, I think the sportsification yeah. of politics has been one of the most destructive things that we've seen ever because it's turned into a game of, pro you know, probabilities of who's going to win and, and, you know, putting those probabilities out before an election, I, I actually think is absolutely wrong. Like, we shouldn't be even we shouldn't even be airing polls 30 days out from an election because it's suppressive, right? Yep. To tell people, oh, don't worry about it. Republicans are going to win. So then why should Democrats come out at all? Maybe That's they right. should just stay home. If you watch the, you know, a lot of newscasts, you as a Democrat, you might, I mean, Democrats I talked to were so pre-demoralized. And when I would tell them, no, I, I think Democrats are going to hold the Senate, they would be in absolute shock. Everyone I told before the election you know, I even would say it on my team meetings. You know, my my team had to hear this from me every every morning at 11 o'clock. I'm like, no, nah, Democrats are going to hold the Senate in the House as a toss up. I told lots of people that and they all were completely shocked. I had Democrats who work in the business, who are in the business of working in politics, already pre-demoralized that they were going to lose every race. And I'm like, based on what? What data are you using? The polling averages. They're using the same bad data um, that the Republicans had gained. And you make a point that I think is so important, and it's one of the reasons we can't seem to fix this, is no one wants to tell 
60, 62, 65% of the country a truth that's uncomfortable. It yeah. makes a lot of reporters uncomfortable to talk about it. And there's not a critical mass of people of color in media like myself who are willing to tell, to say these uncomfortable things, right? I mean, I, I've taught classes, I used to teach at Syracuse and my classes would be all white. There would be basically like four, um, I usually had like a few kids who were um, matriculated from China because Syracuse had a lot of Chinese students mm -hmm. and I would have maybe one black kid, maybe one Asian American kid, but it was mostly white kids. And I was as blunt as I'm being with you right now about race. I mean, I would open my class talking about lynching and those kids survived this conversation with this black lady talking about race. It will not break white people to talk about race, but the media and some of our governors, thinking Ron DeSantis, they act yeah. like people will break, they'll shatter if you present them with factual information about race. But here's the problem with that. The whole country was a slave colony and you can't undo a slave colony without breaking a few dishes, right. without a few things getting um, uncomfortable. You can't have a country that is on purpose racially diverse because you keep trying to replace the slaves with other brown people who will work for almost nothing. So then we got to get the brown people to work for nothing. OK, now they're tired of it. You know, oh, no, yeah. we forgot we got the Chinese to build the railroads for almost nothing. OK, they didn't want to do that anymore. Now they wanted to have a decent living. Let's go get the Puerto Ricans. We'll just grab their whole island and make them be here because we want their labor for free. You can't keep adding. Then we're like, we'll get the Italians. We really don't think they're white, but we'll just pretend they're white when we're con when it's convenient demographically right like it, it's we keep doing this and having these really fundamental racial conflicts like you think about the previous versions of the insurrection we had in january 2021 it was in places like wilmington north carolina it was in places like tulsa oklahoma it was in throughout this country we keep having insurrections and they're all about the same thing it, a, a certain percentage of white americans not being willing to share power with black people and that's what the other insurrection in January 2021 was about, too. The anger and rage that mostly people of color, mainly black people, voted for Joe Biden. And that is fundamentally seen as illegitimate by a certain percentage of white Americans. The end. They want their candidate to win. And also they want to always win. And they want to be guaranteed they will always win. And that's it. And it's not more complicated than that. That's what the right. insurrection was about. And I'm sorry to break it to folks, but that was it. Yeah. And the fact that this is news to many people uh, is just a sign of, of how miserably we fail at educating people um, because it's always going to happen if the, you know, the two things that always seem to, to uh, occur when something bad happens. Uh, we're told that we can't look back. We have to look forward. <laughs> Uh, like we're just so weak and pathetic. And, and, you know, this is one thing that I'll give Donald credit for. It's like he suddenly made it like really cool and a sign of maturity never to take responsibility for your mistakes. <laughs> like, I did like, nothing wrong. <laughs> I didn't grow up with that particular lesson. Uh, you know, and then, of course, the other thing is that white people are such precious snowflakes that teaching them the truth about our country's history will will mortally wound them some somehow. And to me, the great irony there is by choosing to remain ignorant, then you actually do be, start to bear responsibility for the perpetuation of these incredibly unfair, racist systems that are still in place. So it, like, I figure like if we could 
figure out how to message that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, because if you go in and, and knowing people are going to all sort of get, you know, the white people, uh, are you racist? No, I'm not racist. Like they immediately get defensive. It's like, if you grew up in the seventies or eighties in America as a white person, you're racist. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> so anyway, I think another way to deal with this issue head on is to increase, increase the diversity of voices uh, f from whom we, we get our information. Um, and in, in the process sort of, uh, right the wrong of what what is journalistic neutrality right mm -hmm. um so we're told that fox is fine <laughs> but uh black journalists are incapable of neutrality in mm -hmm. because they're black or something right. uh so it seems like there's well that seems like there has been this very disturbing trend starting i'm sure starting before this but uh you know from melissa harris perry uh through Lena Maxwell and now most recently Tiffany Cross, I'm sure many others in between. And I know Jason Johnson is in the crosshairs. You've been in the crosshairs for a very, very long time. Um, and it doesn't seem like the, the, the right response is to diminish the number <laughs> of voices, but to increase them. So, so there is, is, not just representation demographically, but over-representation of voices that have been missing from the conversation for far too long. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, if you think about it, we live in a world where Tucker Carlson can literally spew white nationalism every night on a major, on the largest, on the most prolific cable network of all. Like he can do that with no consequences. He can attack me, he can attack Tiffany, he can attack Jason, he can go in on Ellie Mastal. He can do that all day long and his and there's no consequences for him, period, other than he has no advertisers, but it doesn't matter. Fox doesn't require him to make money on his show. They right. just want him to keep talking. They actually gave him a second show. I think he has a streaming show too. He can literally um, you know, put Kanye West on for an hour knowing he's not all there, you know, you know, we, we, I'd like to see him on his meds before him getting interviewed again, but he can exploit him for an hour to get and then edit it weirdly to take out the openly anti-Semitic stuff, because I guess that's Tucker's own job to do that bit, you know, and, and that's fine, apparently. <laughs> right. You want to keep all that for himself. You know, when he and Orban are on together, maybe yeah. they can talk about the, you know, the, the Jewish folks themselves. And he wanted but, Kanye to keep that Adidas uh, and he, yeah, sponsorship. Yeah. So that he could have a reason to bring it back on. Right. Yeah. So he can do that. And that's fine. But for black journalists, if we respond to it, I mean, Megyn Kelly who, you know, she got let go, you know, from her um, contract because of racism, like literally because of racism, yep. literally. And yet she's free to go off and take her $69 million and not for whatever reason, still wanted to say more things yet. and that whatever, you know, it's fine. She can do that. She has a right to say whatever she wants to say, but it's far riskier. You know, Ellie Mastal did a post, uh, did a post thread about this, that it's much riskier for a person who is black or brown to say, to do the same thing. It's much riskier for black folks to talk about race in a forthright way or to even defend themselves against racist attacks in a forthright way. It's you're taking a far bigger risk if you're doing that as black, doing that in black skin as yes. if you know and 
So it's, it's a high wire act that I think white commentators don't have to ever face or deal with um, or confront because it's just riskier, you know, it just is. And that's unfortunate because it shouldn't be riskier. And we need more voices who are willing to, to speak for it about race, because unfortunately, the way that the U.S. education system works is that we haven't really taught a lot of white folks. Not everybody's Tim Wise. You know, Tim Wise, like the wokest white guy ever. Right. He knows the history. He fought David Duke as a young man, fought his political career and tried, fought his political rise. Um, so he gets it. But there aren't that many people who really do. Dave Zirin, there are a few. But for, by and large, white Americans are shielded from the racial history of this country in a way black people are not. We grow up knowing exactly what America is. And that doesn't mean we love America any less, but we just know what we're dealing with. Right. We know what we're dealing with. We understand that racism is here in big ways and in small, in you know, somebody asking, what's your name? When you call to get a job and you say Tamika and they don't call you back. We know what that is. When you see an apartment listing open and you show up to look at the apartment and all of a sudden it's not available. We know that still happens even in New York, not just in the South, right? I, we, I'm, I think I was related to somebody who uh, did something who put like C for colored on something uh, like that. Something like that. Thanks, you know, Grandpa. We, <laughs> we know what that is, right? Yeah. And so it's like we jur journalists of color are just built different. We're built to say these things, and we have we have no problem saying it. We don't feel discomfort saying it because we grew up knowing it's true, and people have trouble hearing it and get really uncomfortable hearing it. You know, we're not uncomfortable saying we, we understand that Clarence Thomas does, has no interest in us as black people. He, we know he has no interest. We know he's not waking up at night thinking about black folks, we get it. But if we say it, it's more risky for us to even say it about him and he's black. So, you know, I think that the challenge for the media is we need all the diversity we can get, not just people who are black, but people who are willing to say the black things forthrightly and to say them without fear, um, because it's risky for us to do it. That we should, but somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it, and uh, I. That also connects up with how um, the Democratic Party, I think, seriously needs to look and look in the mirror long and hard. Um, and running up to this election, I, I have a show on Tuesdays called the Strategy Session, and we focused on. It wasn't about policy. It was purely about how the de what the Democrats can do to increase their chances of winning, et cetera. So I always held my punches when it came to things I maybe disagreed with that the Biden administration or Democrats in general were doing. Well, the gloves have to be off now because uh, we did do extraordinarily well yesterday we need to seize that mo momentum and run with it and and take the first because the you know as you know the 2024 presidential election started yesterday <laughs> makes me want to go to an island for a couple <laughs> years but anyway take me with you <laughs> i will i will if it ever becomes an option um so that's at least a year i think to kind of confront the democrats uh very openly with uh, what I believe are serious mistakes and limitations. The fact that Democrats are often comfortable, or, you know, Democratic leadership is often comfortable telling people, whether it's 
blacks or uh, immigrants or uh, transgender people or people in the whole LGBTQ plus community, that we just need to defer your rights for another election cycle because it's too dangerous. That shit's got to stop because that is forget about the fact not forget about the fact but let's leave aside for a moment the fact that it's never very smart to disrespect your entire base <laughs> you know i wish the democrats treated their base with the same deference that the right treats its base and of course the difference being that the ba the right's base is a bunch of fascist white supremacist misogynistic racist anti-semitic horrible people <laughs> So, you know, so yes, yeah, so let's not diss the base, but also I just think it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrible strategy anyway. I mean, it's wrong. It's as a human being, it's wrong, but what, like, what do we do <laughs> to make that argument compelling enough for the Democrats to say, you know what, it is not right that the votes of black Americans are suppressed all the time. And I love, you know, when they say 2020 was the freest and fairest election, I'm like, yeah, tell that to the hundreds of million, not hundreds, tens of millions of black Americans who were stricken off the voter rolls and had no recourse. Right. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, it's, it's not okay that trans women are murdered at far greater rates. It's not okay to torture uh, children of people trying to come into this country simply because it's not okay for either gay children or children with gay parents to to be made to feel like second-class citizens what what do you attribute that reluctance to because i honestly think it is the biggest obstacle in um the democrats ability to have the kinds of majorities it actually should have yeah i i totally agree with you i mean if you think about who is the Democratic base, right? Historically, the Democratic base actually used to be white working class people when the Democrats were the conservative party mm -hmm. and it was Southerners, Southern white working class folks. That all shifted, you know, you get to FDR and black voters started to be interested in voting for Democrats because of the New Deal, even though they were locked out of a lot of it by FDR, who had his own racist, racist racism problems, but he also was being pragmatic. He knew he needed Southern votes to get things through Congress, even though they had a supermajority of like 67 votes. Um, but black folks started voting for Democrats and Truman comes in and he opens up the military, more blacks go in, you know, and, you know, by the time Eisenhower comes along, like it's kind of a tug of war between Democrats and Republicans and Democrats are largely winning that tug of war. By the time Kennedy comes along, black folks are Democrats. Um, when Barry Goldwater, you know, that, that whole wing of the party drives Democrats, but black folks just out of the party and then Nixon finishes the job, right? So then you have the party switch places and switch bases. So black folks are the Democrats' strongest base. Black women vote like 96% Democratic. Black men, even on their worst day, vote 88 to 90% Democratic. Don't believe the hype. Black men vote more Democratic than the next largest group, which is Jewish Americans, who vote about 83% Democratic. Don't believe that hype either. They're not switching to Republicans. They've been Democrats since, <laughs> since World War II. And then you go down to about two thirds of Hispanics and it's gotten to be about two thirds to three quarters of, of Asian Americans um, when they bother to poll Asian Americans, which is another issue yeah. of polling. So, so the, the Democratic Party is the, poly, is the racially polyglot party. It's also the party 
of both religiously liberal people and irreligious people, people who are not affiliated with a religion. It's also the party of young people. If we go back to white voters for a second, we were talking about that earlier. In this election, we had a very big shift in about three different groups of white voters toward the Democratic Party. White voters under 30 voted substantially in favor of Democrats. That normally doesn't happen. Ask Ron Brownstein, go look at all of his data. Even in, in a pretty good year for Democrats, you're lucky if you can get half of white voters under 30 typically to vote Democratic. Mostly all white voters are about 60-40 Republican. But white voters in this election went about 55% for Democrats. That's historic. Young people saved this country. It was millennials and Gen Zers who dragged this election toward the Democrats. They're also the most exorcised about Roe. White voters who don't go to church went about 60-40 for Democrats, another major group. White women who are unmarried went substantially for Democrats, unmarried white women. That's why Jesse Waters wants all of us to get married and settle down. Correct. So these are the groups of people who would be considered woke. What does woke means? It means they're empathetic. That's all woke means. Just stay yeah. up, know, know what's happening to other people and give a damn, right? So yep. that's why they fight wokeness so hard because young people tend to be more empathetic. Ironically, irreligious people tend to be more empathetic than highly religious people, which is the high irony as a Christian, somebody who grew up in the church, I found it sad and ironic, right? And, uh, and people who are uh, untethered in a marriage tend to be more independent. Women, you know, independent women. So, those, so one thing Democrats could do is maximize the votes of those people. If you if you want white voters so bad, like people like Tim Ryan, who are out there trying to run as a pretend MAGA and sucking up to MAGA voters, he got nine percent of Republican votes. So ignoring the black vote didn't help him win. It helped him lose. Sherrod Brown doesn't do that. Sherrod no. Brown doesn't run ads saying Donald Trump was right about dot, dot, dot China and, dot, and I voted against Obama and the dot, dot, dot trade bill. He ran as a he runs as a Democrat and he wins all the time in Ohio. So it's not unwinnable. And then looking at the party, the party did not invest, for instance, in Gary Chambers in Louisiana. Most black Americans still live in the South. The South should be as competitive as Michigan. Michigan has about 12% African-Americans. You can regularly not just elect a Democrat in Michigan. You can get Big Gretch reelected and take over the whole House, State House, and Senate. That's That's how, and Black voters drive that vote in Michigan. And they're only 12% of the population. So how come Mississippi, which has 33% African-Americans in their population, can't elect but one Black congressman? Yes, gerrymandering. But statewide? Because nobody turns out to vote. Black folks don't turn out to vote there. They don't turn out to vote in Louisiana. There are 949,000 approximately registered black Democrats in Louisiana. Kennedy, who just got reelected, the guy who fakes being foghorn, leghorn, even though he's a Rhodes Scholar. Oxford. Oxford. Sorry, Oxford. He got reelected with 800 and something thousand votes, 100 more, 100,000 votes fewer than the number of black Democrats registered in the state. You know how many of them turned out? What, maybe 10, 20 percent for a black candidate? Go to Florida. I was on the phone. And a good candidate. An excellent candidate. Go to Florida. Val Demings, brilliant woman, very popular. Turnout anemic. Yes, Miami-Dade went Republican because it's Cuban-American dominated. Most of the blacks have moved out of Miami-Dade and moved to Broward. Broward is the black county. You know what the turnout was in Broward? Anemic. 
Terrible. Jacksonville, very black, low turnout. Orange County, her county, low turnout. You see where I'm going here? Kentucky, another great black candidate. I'm getting a sense of the trend. Uh, you know, Charles uh, J J Charles uh, Booker, who's a fantastic candidate. Fantastic. Nobody even likes Rand Paul in Kentucky. Start with that. They can't stand neither of their senators. He still got reelected. Was the black turnout high? No. Did the Democratic Party in Kentucky try to turn it out? No. Did the Democratic Party in Florida try to turn out the black vote? No. Did the Democratic Party in North Carolina try to help Sherry Beasley, a statewide elected official five minutes ago because she was the Supreme Court Justice Chief Justice. She was viable. She barely lost. What did the Democratic Party in North Carolina do for her? Not a whole hell of a lot. So you see where I'm going? The party doesn't, I either do. they don't want these candidates, it's like they want just enough black voters to come out to keep whoever's already in office in office. But because these, Louisiana got a Democratic governor. That's right. Kentucky got a Democratic governor. That's right. You can elect a Democrat statewide in Florida because the lady who was agriculture commissioner is a female Democrat. That's right. So it's like Democrats can get elected in these Southern states. And then here's the most egregious one of all, Mary Mandela Barnes. Yeah. You know, the most successful combination to elect a governor in this country for Democrats is a white gubernatorial candidate and a black L a black Lieutenant governor worked in New Jersey, worked in Wisconsin. Okay. Follow me. He was the Lieutenant governor Mandela Barnes. How could a former sitting Lieutenant governor not beat Ron Johnson? who's an insurrectionist. You know why? Did the party have a campaign that compelled Wisconsin black voters to get out in crazy numbers for this basically statewide Barack Obama? No. <laughs> Troy, I, I completely agree with everything about I, I, I find it maddening, absolutely maddening. And you know what? It isn't simply that the Democratic candidates are extraordinary human beings. I, Stacey Abrams. Oh, Cherry my God. Beasley, don't start uh, oh, I can't. I can't. I can't. I know. It's like. Fall that, out. <laughs> um, she was, Ooh, talk about deserving. This she lady was, built the black turnout machine in that state. She registered. That state is 95% registered to vote because of her. That's right. And Kemp stole the election from her last time because. Come on. Well, you know. Come on. Anyway. So that's that's even more painful <laughs> because Stacey Abrams has has done so much. Hero. Beyond just running uh, and being amazing. Um, Val Demings, extraordinary. Mandela, Come on. all these people you mentioned, Beto O'Rourke. Come on. And Come on now. <laughs> but it's also that the people they're running against oh. are just the worst fucking people. <laughs> I mean, issues with Tim Ryan, absolutely. But J.D. Vance. Come on now. Right? That's embarrassing. <laughs> and, and it's sort of it's like this trend that um, start well didn't start with him, but it became glaringly obvious with Brett Kavanaugh. They could have they could have nominated somebody who was just as horrible <laughs> in terms of how he was going to vote, but he could have at least presented as a decent human being who right. hadn't sexually assaulted people and wasn't a thug. You know, but on. no, they have to shove it down our throats. The only caveat I think with Mandela Barnes this is my opinion. I don't necessarily think in Wisconsin having uh, Bernie Sanders be your surrogate was necessarily the best way to go because it's Wisconsin. It's 
it to but, And he didn't take PAC money. It's like, baby, <sighs> take the PAC money. That's okay, right. you need money to win an election. Sherry Beasley ran out of money at the end. Didn't get an Obama visit to do GOTV. Yeah, you need to do political things to win. Don't say, oh, that's too political. I don't want the former president to come out. You know, oh, take his visit. And if you're Mandela Barnes, take the money, man. If they're the doing it. And having Bernie come out, that's not going to get you to win. No, no. And and any to lose against Johnson, who oh. is a Russian asset, for God's oh. sakes, it's just unspeakably bad. And you're right. Look, I don't think I don't want Democrats to fight like Republicans. I don't want us cheating, lying and stealing and uh, engaging in ad hominem attacks and threatening people at all. However, mm. we do need to put the brass knuckles on if if they're doing it and it's not cheating, lying and stealing, we're, we should do it. Take the money. Take the money. <laughs> you know? And the thing is, you have to build these state parties. I'm going to give Jamie Harrison credit. He put $90 million DNC money on the ground because he knows what it feels like to run in a tough state. He ran in South Carolina, lost to another person nobody likes. Lindsey Graham. I don't even yeah. know anybody in Lindsey Graham that, that in, in South Carolina that actually likes Lindsey Graham. They just keep voting for him. He's a Republican. And it's right. very hard to get Southern white voters to vote for any Democrat. Although, again, they sometimes do. Because, again, North Carolina's got a Democratic uh, governor. Louisiana's got a Democratic governor. On and on and on. I mean, Chris Jones. I forgot to mention Chris Jones running in Arkansas against oh, Sarah right. Huckabee Sanders. And he you was th- a brilliant candidate. He's a rocket scientist, literally. Literally. And she's vile. <laughs> she's just and vile. She just lied for a living for, for, for Trump. For, for Trump. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's frustrating because I think these state Democratic parties didn't listen to Howard Dean. Howard Dean was yeah. absolutely right about the 50 state strategy. And the consultant class that runs the Democratic Party refuses to let go of the reins and fund these state parties and populate them. Gary Chambers should become the new head of the Louisiana Democratic Party. Charles Booker should become the new head of the Kentucky Democratic Party. Val Deming should get a cabinet position or become the new head of the because people who have the balls to run in these unlikely states and Florida is also an unlikely state. It's a red state. They are the people who know what it feels like on the ground. Stop restraining them with all these consultants around them who don't unleash them. Gary Chambers ran a great campaign because it was uninhibited. He didn't have any consultants. So he just did his thing. He burned a cross to show people about racism. Like he he spoke in a way people could understand. Charles Booker, same thing. These were brilliant candidacies. Sherry Beasley, too cautious. The candidacy was too cautious. Yeah. But the consultants made her do that. And so it's like, let these consultants back away. Let these brilliant candidates loose. Mandela Barnes ran away from being a a progressive, tried to run back to being a progressive at the end. Figure out who you are and what your message is and just be strong in it. And you've got to get your base out. Republicans fear their base for good reason, because a lot of them have guns and they've got a lot of death threats to their own side. (laughs) A lot of Congress people are terrified of, (laughs) literally terrified of their base. They're like, these people might kill me and my family. So they're afraid of their base. Democrats seem to hate their base or just sort of have disdain for them. They just disdain. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense. Like we see, uh, we saw in uh, Pennsylvania, the degree to which being authentically yourself as a candidate mattered. I mean, Fetterman beat Connor Lamb because he ran as John Fetterman. That's right. Not as some candidate who was who was cooked up in a laboratory somewhere That's that, right. that we thought was going to appeal yeah. to uh, everybody. And, you know, it's interesting. And in, in you're going through all of this. I, I was guilty again because I set myself up for disappointment because I was <laughs> so optimistic about this election, even though we're doing great. So, yeah. you know, don't listen to my uh, 
my disappointment. But, um, you know, thinking I've always believed that Democrats should fight for every single race from dog catcher on up. Yes. Right. But, you know, do we focus on things that are more gettable, like in a, not Ohio, uh, like a Pennsylvania or a Wisconsin, then a Florida or an Ohio? And that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm thinking, well, you know, I guess Florida is just a solidly, solidly red state. Well, it will be if we continue to fail to fight yes. properly. Yes. Yes. And we we can't keep doing that. And And we do need to get to the bottom of what is going on with uh, the Democratic Party's fail, just abject failure to understand, motivate, and honor the people who make it possible for them to be in positions of power. 100%. Quite something. And Texas is a really good example. Beto O'Rourke is a decent good man who yeah. had every, who, who deserved to win because he's the better man, right, yeah. than Abbott. But in the state of Texas, it's the most voter suppressed state in the country other than Wisconsin, but it is an extremely voter suppressed state because it's an apartheid state. It's a state run by white men, almost unique, almost entirely, but mm -hmm. that the population is already majority Latino. And it's and, and Latino, um, the Latino demographic is America's youngest demographic. As it comes online, we're talking about what, like 18,000 a minute or something to come online as, as, red, as 18 year olds or something. I'm probably overdoing the numbers, but, you know, millions of Latinos become 18 like every week. You know, they keep yeah. coming. And if they voted at scale, they're 15 percent of the population. If Latinos voted at scale, they are two thirds Democrats. Republicans would never be able to win another election let alone in Texas, Arizona, and Nevada, any place where they have substantial numbers, but they don't vote at scale. Who in the party, Cortez Mosto is a really good, uh, in, in a really good version of this. So Nevada has a substantial Hispanic population. It's very much concentrated in those Las Vegas area unions. Mm -hmm. Maria Teresa Kumar, who we both know, who's fabulous, and both yeah. the Latino has been trying to do this work. You know, the party, the state parties, and, I, and that party actually is quite a quality party. Uh, Harry Reid built a hell of a party he in did. Nevada. But there's a, the, 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 at the national scale, there's a reluctance to have Cortez Masto lean into being Latina. She's the only Latina senator. She's the only one there is. And so having her lean into that and activate her community, that's not dissing white uh, working class voters who, Demo who are Democrats are obsessed with. White working class voters are Republicans. They're Republicans now. Let it go. <laughs> Start leaning Please. into getting, get your black voters to vote, get your Latinos, get your Asian Americans, get them excited with a message that they can understand. There was in language um, attacks to try to pull Asian Americans. Republicans are on um, Chinese speak, Chinese language radio, you know, in their ears. They're on Cuban radio. Saying all the Democrats are, are communists, all the Democrats yep. are communists. They're on Haitian radio in Miami, in their ear. Are Democrats there? No. Democrats are are seeding this ground, and the future of this country is multiracial. And you want white voters, uh, Democrats? You want white voters? They're there for you. They're young. They are the young white voters. They're the unmarried women. They're the people who don't go to church. Th those people are your people. They voted for you this midterm in big numbers. They're the ones who are scared about Roe. Get those voters to vote for you. Young women, young unmarried women, young people, period, of all races, 
non-church people and liberal church people. We, we got, I'm a church person. We got liberal church folks. Come get us. Yes, stop, we do. B- stop pining for white working class Republicans because they're never coming back. It's like when you dated somebody and you're like, you know, I like my new, my new person, you know, they pay the bills and they, they're so nice to me, but I really want my old beater husband back. <laughs> I want my old beater boyfriend back. And we, Democrats are. Right, we don't want them back. Like, why should we want them back? You know, before before 2020, I you know, would ask like, what what do we do we talk to these people? Like, no, ignore no. them. <laughs> Jesus, anybody who votes for Donald Trump twice needs to alone. be ignored <laughs> forever. Forever. They gone. Um, and they gone. <laughs> it's like trying to interview Kanye. He gone, y'all. <laughs> right. It's, He's gone now. <laughs> Play it's, his old music it's and leave just, him alone. <laughs> yeah, because I there, play late registration. There are on your a couple phone. Of, couple of songs that I actually am quite fond I of. Too. I just pretend that they're by no somebody one else. Should have all that power. I love it. It's play the Kanye who does it. That's right. Um, but <laughs> even even if when the Democrats do pay attention, and uh, you know Maria, I'm glad you mentioned Maria Teresa Kumar. She's phenomenal. Photo Latina is phenomenal organization, but. Democrats who don't understand these things work, <laughs> and yeah, should when they do address uh, the Hispanic voter, they treat Hispanics like it's a freaking monolith. Like, how yeah. many different kinds of Latino slash Hispanic voters are there in this country? Uh-huh. You know, you can't just approach them all like they're they believe the same things or come from the same places or have yeah. the same ideas or the same concerns yeah. about things. And yeah, you know, same thing, same thing with young voters. So, I feel like. I, I know we have to go soon, and yeah. I, I have enjoyed this so <laughs> tremendously. I'm telling you, I, I've been looking forward to this for such a long time. <laughs> and I mean, I've been I've been watching you since uh, AM Joy for, forever ago. Uh, so this is, and you know, you the way your work has evolved as because uh, again, I don't. It's not like the challengers are new, yeah. but I think the the numbers of people who are affected by them has changed dramatically. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So so it's tough yeah, out here. <laughs> it's tough out here, but I think knowing that is 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 key. So before you go, I just wanted to, in addition just to thanking you for your extraordinary work, uh, which is invaluable um for so many reasons. Um I wanted to just check in with you and see since we are in the, the 2024 election cycle already, what do you think are the key ways in which Democrats continue to increase their momentum because we do have it, mm-hmm. obviously, um, and get and and grapple in a in real ways with the challenges that face. Like we haven't even we didn't even talk about massage noir or mm. uh, you know the other kinds of sometimes subtle but always insidious ways in which uh, people Democrats should be talking to get um, silenced uh, or, you know, are somehow uh, not factored in. Um, That was really poorly. (laughs) I get it. So sorry. Um, But what what are the shifts you'd like to see and what what are the pressure points that you think we need to be pressing on? 
So I think one of the things that I'll, I'm, I'm going to quote Mr. Rogers, the great Mr. Rogers, look yeah. for the helpers, right? Yeah. Um, Democrats need to start looking through their bench because they actually do have a bit of little, little bitty bench now. We, we're building yeah. a little bench. There are some really good messengers. Get them out there and make them do a lot of the talking. I think the governor of California, Gavin Newsom, is a fantastic messenger. Yep. He's gutsy. He's strong. Big Gretch. She is, to me, Absolutely. the biggest story of these midterms because she survived a kidnapping attempt. Seriously. Okay, and then Seriously. swept, got back in, easily reelected, and swept the whole House and State House and Senate. She's a future leader, really smart. Um, look at um, Shapiro. This yeah. guy, he like did his own little version of Obama. Those little speeches he did at the end, I said, oh, I see the Obama. In that you, was friend. amazing. I, 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 the first one I heard, I didn't, I wasn't watching. Yeah. And I thought it was Obama. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, I, seriously, it's you had the sound down because he, he was doing his Obama. Fetterman, Fetterman is so yep. authentic. He done sent Oz back to New Jersey. That's a Yay. powerful man. He just, he packed up, went home, <laughs> you know. Um, he's great. And also Wes Moore, who won yes. a historic election in, um, in, 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 in Maryland, my governor. Yep. Fabulous potential future president, and even some mm -hmm. of the candidates who didn't win. Don't let Beto go. Keep him. He's still a great messenger. Right. He's still got options. And then you got young people like Maxwell Frost, That's who right. won in Florida. Florida ain't all bad. Maxwell Frost won. There's some good news there. Find those people. Make those your messengers. You know, AOC, probably your best messenger to Gen Z. My kids, they listen to her. If she puts something on her Instagram, they will believe it and they will listen to her more than they'll listen to me. Like they listen to her. <laughs> she is a great messenger. Let her target young people. Let the other members of the squad target young people. Use those really strong voices and let them do your messaging because y'all ain't good at it on the national level. It's not what your strength is. And then the second piece is use these former Republicans because if Republicans are not are good at nothing else, it's messaging. And people like the Lincoln Project, yep. uh, Duty to Warn, these former Republicans, the Rick Wilsons of the world, th their power hasn't been marshaled enough because they're actually better at messaging than Democrats are because they came from that really strong messaging machine on the other side. Now they're on our side, the pro-democracy side, and start letting them really push out your messaging. But it can't just be on Twitter. A an ad they post on Twitter is not enough. Put some money behind some of those ads. Those ads would have been great to be running in places like Florida and Wisconsin, et cetera. So number one is messaging. Can I ask Num you a quick question yeah, sure. about that? Because mm -hmm. I, I so agree with that. And I, it, it seems like Lincoln Project, et cetera, yes, doing great work. Um, I, I support them. I've done shows with them and fundraisers and stuff. But it feels like they, they were kind of uh, just put in their little place and not brought in to the That's fight right. and and so always from the outside and again That's effective right. but i think you're right that bringing them inside That's right. and collaborating would be much more effective because much otherwise effective. it just seems like they're disgruntled uh anti-trump people as opposed to from what i can tell at least from the people i've spoken with and work with are truly pro-democracy and, and those people might as touch. These guys are on the outside posting those videos mostly on social. And that's yeah. fine. But put some money behind those kinds of ads. And I'm sure there are firms of color because there's also a, 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 di a diversity problem inside the Democratic Party's consultant class. Mm -hmm. There are great firms of, of, of black, brown owned firms, LGBTQ firms. Make more diversity in terms of who's doing these ads. Stop letting these same old cronies do all these ads that don't work and that don't help. Find out who did the ads. Uh-oh. 
ads for you, right? Start getting effective people to do your messaging. That's number one. Number two, um, I would say is start the messaging on 2024 now. Don't wait until next year until he who shall remain nameless announces his campaign and he and DeSantis start destroying each other, which I'm actually here for. I I'm am. actually here for that fight. Let we're going to have lots of popcorn together. We're going to enjoy it. Go ahead and dog walk each other. Put, you know, dog walk one <laughs> another. I'm happy for it. I'm here for it. So start your messaging now because the pro the, the threats to democracy didn't end w- with this election and won't end with this election. Anti-democracy forces are not not, they don't get tired. Anti-women forces don't get tired. Don't think they're not coming for birth control. They are. Don't think they're not coming for your IUD ladies. All of you white ladies who still voted Republican, they're coming for you eventually too. The Handmaid's Tale don't end well for anybody in that movie. And you're in the movie too. So right. start your messaging now and to, for God's sakes, put some money in these states, not just the swing states, every state, 50 state strategy, make Republicans spend money everywhere. It was worthwhile for Charles Booker to force Rand Paul to spend money in Kentucky and to build the basis of a new party there. It was worth it for Chambers to force Kennedy to worry a little bit and spend some money and for him to travel around that state and begin to build the base. The turnout machine needs to be built. Not now, not not a year from now, not six weeks out from the election. Start building that turnout machine and that messaging today. Absolutely. That was extraordinary. (laughs) Uh, And um, I'm I'm actually going to like cut that and clip and just put it everywhere because it's that is the plan. That is the game plan. And uh, Joy, the work you do is is. So, as I said earlier, it's invaluable. Um, I'm grateful to everything you're doing and uh, just your speaking truth to power, pulling no punches. <clears throat> so everybody, Joy Reid, journalist, <laughs> host of the readout on MSNBC, which you should be watching every day. Uh, and it's just so awesome when we get more of you when you guys are doing election results and stuff like that. Uh, so extraordinary human being, Joy Reid. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. Thank you, Mary. I, I love you. And there's nothing you can do about it. Thank you for having <laughs> me on. <laughs> I love you too. All right. Stay safe out there. Okay. Peace. Okay, as I mentioned, I, I've been feeling a little bit, just a little bit despondent over the election results because, uh, I don't know, maybe I have more faith in human nature than I should. And I really wanted the Democrats to win really big. But I feel so happy right now because I just got to spend an entire hour with Joy Reid. Uh, so thank you to Joy. Um, I really, I, I admire what she does so much. And I assume a lot of you already watch her show. But uh, for those who don't, definitely uh, start um, because, you know, she she keeps us informed in a way that's real and uh, that's necessary. And she has extremely uh, great guests. So uh, and of course, thank you to you, all of you for joining us. Uh, It's always a pleasure. I so appreciate your comments and your support. And, you know, now that the election's over, we're going to we're going to start pivoting. Uh, to the next one. And, uh, you know, things are going to look a little different around here because uh, we don't have to, um, we don't have to hold back anymore. Uh, And we're not going to. 
So thank you again. Uh, just don't forget to be here next Tuesday uh, for the Mary Trump Show strategy sessions, although we might rename it uh, now that we are in a new and in some cases more important election cycle uh, with the Nerd Avengers. That's at 12 p.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on youtube.com slash Politicon. And of course, we'll be back next Thursday uh, with our regular interview show with guest Ali Velshi. Really looking forward to that. That is at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Also at youtube.com slash Politicon. While you're on Politicon's YouTube channel, please subscribe to Politicon. It doesn't cost anything. Uh, just the more people subscribing, the better. Leave a comment if you want. Like the episode. Click on that bell. Uh, that way you will be notified every time a new video drops. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm still, <laughs> still not 100%, but hopefully on the mend. And once I'm, I'm totally back on my feet, I'm going to start making a lot more videos. Uh, so definitely click that bell so you can uh, uh, stay, stay up to date with what's going on here at the Mary Trump show. And speaking of the Mary Trump show, we have rescheduled our live show in Los Angeles, which is at the theater dynasty typewriter. It is going to be at on Monday, January 19th, at 7.30 p.m. Uh, tickets are going on sale, I think, this week. Um, but I'll be tweeting about it, of course, at least as long as uh, Elon Musk lets my uh, my tweets go out. Uh, that is going to be a blast. I'm really uh, excited about it. Um, I'll keep uh, letting you know as we get closer. And that is it. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, have a wonderful weekend. I will see you next Tuesday. In the meantime, please stay safe and be kind. Mm -hmm.